Welcome to the Wealth Time Freedom Podcast, where we decode the psychology of money, uncover the principles of personal finance, and learn how to put them into practice. This is all about escaping the rut race so we can win the game of life. It's personal finance, but with a big old dollop of personal development. If you're looking for answers, looking for motivation, or looking for help, you're in the right place. Our mission for this channel is to help you get as far as you can on your own. And then if you want to go further and faster, we can help with that too. Let's dive in. Hey, it's Terry. And if you've been following along with our most recent episodes, you'll know that we've been discussing how stagnating economies and rampant inflation or stagflation impacts our personal finances. One thing we haven't touched on is investing during stagflationary periods. Now, talking about this intelligently requires a solid understanding of the fundamentals of sound investment strategy, as well as deep domain expertise in how the global financial system works. And that's what's called macroeconomics. Neither Ryan or myself would claim to be experts in both these fields. And so that's why in this episode, I'm speaking with Lynn Alden. Lynn is a global thought leader, sought after speaker and consultant on macro investing strategy. Her extensive research has also led her to become one of the most trusted voices from the traditional finance space on cryptocurrency. She has advised governments, investment banks, and institutional investors on all of the above, and the articles she publishes are devoured by tens of thousands of investors all over the world every single month. And in this conversation, I tap into Lynn's best thinking in an effort to answer one simple question. Does the environment we find ourselves in change the way we should think about investing? And if so, how? And Lynn holds nothing back, and she details exactly how and why the game has changed, who the winners and losers are likely to be, and what we can learn from monetary history to guide our investment decisions about the future. And I have to say, Lynn is an absolute master of her craft and one of the sharpest minds on the planet when it comes to this subject matter. At times, this does mean she gets a little bit technical, but I do my best to summarize and simplify what she's saying without losing the substance. And Ryan and I have recorded an episode off the back of this to debrief the big ideas and break down some of the concepts we discuss even further. So don't worry if you don't get absolutely everything she says. Just understanding the general gist of what she's saying will put you well beyond most. And the bottom line is, if you want to know how the rules of the game have changed and how to play it, invest your time here now to figure out how best to invest your money. Lynn, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. The reason I wanted to get you on is because from my perspective, having, I guess, broadly kind of looked at this area and trying to understand the investment side of things and, and even macro, you struck me as someone who's has got a really unique skill set and perspective and you kind of combine a worm's eye view uh, with a bird's eye view and then you also understand history because you reference that a lot. So I thought you would be perfect to have on the show to be able to get some guidance on how do we position ourselves over the coming decade if we're young investors trying to make our way forward. So thank you so much for coming on. But I'd love to start from the start. Give us a bit of a backstory on you. Like, Where do you come from? Where did you grow up? Yeah, so I grew up around the Philadelphia region, so East Coast, United States. Um, and, you know, I, I, I've told my story a couple of times, which is that I went through a period of poverty as a child. And I think that instilled a pretty strong saving and investing mindset in me. Uh, I then grew up in a, in a trailer park and eventually went to university and then you know, uh, uh, got out of that kind of a uh, uh, type of situation, and so one thing I try to do is, you know, my 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 first quote unquote career was uh, engineer, and so I, I worked as an engineer, electrical engineer. Then I shifted into engineering management, uh, you know, uh, multidisciplinary engineering teams running the finances for an engineering facility, and on the side, I I always was writing about equities, uh, investing, uh, and just kind of kept that 
uh, kind of a lifelong interest alive. And eventually uh, that, you know, I, I started Lynn Alden Investment Strategy and that, that grew so much that I kind of was forced to leave my engineering job and focus on this other opportunity full time. And so what I do is I provide macro research and uh, individual investment research for uh, both institutional and retail investors. And the way I like to phrase it is I like to try to do institutional quality research, but in plain English, uh, which is how, yes. how that both retail investors and institutional investors get, get value from it in different ways. I try to be broad, but there's areas that I, I avoid because I have no idea. I have no edge there, like things like, you know, biotech, for example. I have zero edge there, whereas I tend to focus on currencies, monetary fiscal policy, the history of such things, energy, commodities, industrials, things that are a little bit more maybe in an engineering wheelhouse uh, and less so than in in some other areas. And that's what I think is really interesting is that background of engineering and finance um, and that early interest because you started investing when you were in high school. Is that right? Yeah, equities uh, in high school and actually like, you know, uh, saving cash and precious metals when I was like a child. So it kind of like I, I started one spot, went up to equities and went from there. Yeah. And then I also read you retired at 33. You were financially independent then. So how does the retirement sort of fit in with more writing and researching and publishing your thoughts? Well, so one, I mean, you know, I had that whole engineering career and I saved on the side and I had a side business, which was which is writing about investments. And so eventually I was financially flexible enough where you know, you have a, a, a very long runway of, of just, you know, you have cash flows coming in from investments. Uh, you know, I kept my expenses pretty tight. And also I had a, I had a big opportunity to pursue more of this self-work, right? So, uh, you know, um, so I, I generally try to structure my, my business around, uh, you know, things that I find passionate, things that I want to do, right? So it's, it's trying to avoid things I don't like to do and try to find things where I, I feel like I'm providing value, which for me is mostly in the form of writing or, or, you know, speaking, right? So it's kind of analyzing it. Well, it's a combination of researching and then trying to help articulate what it is that I've, what I've researched. And I, I find a lot of value in that, especially because this is a very turbulent time. And I, I think that, that it helps people to have, you know, steady voices or, you know, I, you know, everybody, everybody says objective. I mean, some people are more objective than others. Everybody strives. No, no one's perfectly objective, but I try to build a reputation around being objective so that, you know, people that are very different from each other can still hopefully get value from what I'm saying. And so that's, that's something I found um, interesting. Yeah. And I would say that's very unique to you. There's so many voices out there, but it's so inherent, the the level of, I don't know if the word's bias, but we kind of have a point of view that's, I guess, overly simplistic. Whereas I, I think you, you leave things open enough to be able to have, as you said, people with very different opinions take on your perspective. Like what's your secret for that? Because I, I think it's very, very unique. Well, some of it's intentional. Just try not to put too many things that don't need to be like, you know, I, I try not to touch too much on politics unless it specifically relates to investment, for example. To the extent that I focus on politics, it's usually something around corruption or money, right? And, you know, I, the, the, to the extent that I reveal a bias, I'm, I, I'm proud of this bias. It's, it's things like I'm a proponent of human rights and freedom around the world. Uh, and that, of course, can be different things for different people. But, you know, basically means, you know, the, think of like, you know, the, the Bill of Rights type of things, you know, freedom of speech, freedom of expression, freedom to be who you are, freedom to transact. Um and freedom of movement, right? So I, you know, I'm, I, 
you know, I, I, I don't try to be pretend to be completely middle on every issue, but I say, okay, you know, here's a pretty simple set of things I'm working from, and then let's let's try to tackle hard issues, right? So the energy situation's hard, the inflation situation's hard. I always uh, consciously try to steel man the opposing view. So if I'm arguing for inflation, I'm like, okay, let's let's listen to the you know the biggest experts on deflation, and then let's also try to articulate, you know, what is the case for deflation? Here it is, and then why do, why do I disagree? And I'll do that with with other things. You know, if I'm bullish on something, I'm like, okay, well, let's look at the risks. Let's let's try to steel man the the bear case for this. Um, and mm. I think that by just trying to do that consciously, it helps. Definitely. And I did see a tweet of yours. I don't know how long this was, maybe a month or so ago. You, you sort of laid it out, actually. You had a bit of a framework and you said you should think about creating like a hierarchy of what your values are and then, I guess, tackle your issues from there. Is that right? Can you explain more around what you were saying there? Yeah. So a lot of people, when they when they respond to uh, economic issues, political issues, ethical dilemmas, it's always like you know, you're starting from scratch almost. Like you're just kind of judging things on an issue by issue basis and it's generally more efficient to have a, a more conscious framework right so to study some degree of philosophy doesn't mean you have to be a philosophy major but to study you know the different ways of you know coming to conclusions so for example there's ends justifying means and then there's another framework which is more rules-based there's another framework which is more virtue ethics right so start with with integrity and, and go from there and then you get to things like like hierarchy right so you know there's always the in politics kind of the biggest question is individual versus the collective right and so it helps basically to have a framework for what things are inviolable right so i would put something like freedom of expression freedom of speech in something that there's almost nothing that would override it other than you know the classic example of screaming fire and a shouted you know in a theater or giving death threats that are very specific or uh, a clearly obvious intentional libel you know there but there's Basically, freedom of speech would be an example of at the at the very top of the hierarchy of things that almost anything else is going to be below that. So almost no almost no matter how bad speech is, it doesn't mean you can cross that line because even if you think that that instance the world might be better without that speech, you have to then question when we give the power to censor that speech, what happens in 15 years when someone else is in power and they use it against you, right? So whenever you're thinking about doing something, always imagine the tables turned. And so I, I, so you can go down from there. You build a hierarchy. Okay, what is what is nearly inval- like uh, inviolable, and then what is a step below that? What is like almost always important, but there are exceptions. And then what is below that, which is like say highly flexible. And I think that that allows that hierarchy allows you to make decisions in environments like today that are very complex, and that there's a lot of moving parts to be aware of, and that not think not all things can be broken down as simply as many people would like to believe. And it's also an environment where and this this goes back to my study of history that you have these periods of rising populism, right? So the 1930s, uh, and then here in the in the 2020, well the 2010s, uh, going into the 2020s, and it's a powder keg, right? And so it, it's really important to be able to instead of demonize your opposition or straw man them, so basically you know make the weakest form of their argument and then you know criticize that. Instead, it's it's trying to understand you know say okay there are intelligent people on the other side. Why would intelligent people think that thing that I disagree with? And then be able to articulate it, emphasize with them, and then be able to explain why you see things differently. And, and, and sometimes the key th- thing is that you might even agree with a lot of what they're saying, but your hierarchy is different. Uh, and you can you can articulate that. And so I think that that's it's just a useful framework for something. And I think we're in an environment where you want to be able to communicate and you want to have moderation between extremes because this is a it's a it's a challenging time. That's a really really 
good idea, I think. I, what I visualize as you were describing that is almost like a pyramid. Yeah. And at the bottom of this pyramid, you've got issues, but they can exist on sliders. So they're flexible. And as you go up the pyramid, the sliders are less flexible to the top where they're not flexible at all. And you're kind of arguing and understanding from that perspective. And I think hopefully if you're at the top, you're arguing around things most people, if not everyone, can agree upon. And then where the sliders are that you're trying to understand from the other person's perspective. Is that Does that summarize it? That, that's well? exactly how I would describe it. And I mean, sometimes you'd, mm. you'd be surprised at how fundamental some disagreements can be. I mean, there, there are a lot of countries in the world and a lot of people that, you know, they'll outright say, no, we don't want free speech. And they're not even not even just people in the government. There are people in the, in the population that say, no, I don't want that type of, of speech to be allowed. Right. And it's never they almost never want their own speech restricted. They want their opposition restricted. So sometimes you find instances where you're actually almost diametrically opposed to them. And then at that point, say you're in some instance where you're discussing or debating with them, that becomes more about debating to the audience. Right. You're not trying to convince that person. You're trying to show why your absolute axiom is better than theirs and that theirs is, you know, uh, whereas if your if your disagreement is further down on the hierarchy, that's where there's a lot more ability to convince each other or to come to an agreement or to you know at least make it so that both sides understand the other side and you know can get a beer together and maybe still disagree because it's you're not like diametrically opposed and I think I think if people build those hierarchies it's it's easy to figure out where they have Venn diagrams you know a Venn diagram of where they they match up and I think people have a lot more in common you know than otherwise as long as they don't have conflicts among like their foundational principles yeah it what's your view on like is it even worth pursuing an argument with someone at the top there where you are diametrically opposed or is it just is it more just worth saying hey we just we just agree to disagree well i mean in politics that's the thing i mean some at some point you're always impacted if someone wants to impose their top of line thing on you that you know that's we have a problem but like i said at that point it'd be less you know you could still try to convince them maybe maybe you know some people do switch diametrically in in their lifetimes but i think it's it's at that point it's more about trying to convince you know uh third parties that are maybe that haven't articulated it well or haven't thought thought it through and you're trying to show why 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 you think your axiom is better than that other person's and so it's less about trying to convince that other person definitely it's a really good framework i think Let's talk more a little bit about your methodology now. So you talk a bit about having what your edge is and you kind of mentioned that earlier on, you've got this kind of background in engineering. So it gives you kind of a first principles understanding of things, then traditional finance, but you also have this overlay of, of macro. So how does all that fit together and how did that come together? So a lot of it, so my background is, is you know, my the, the later stage of my engineering career was focused on systems engineering, which is basically you know, a lot of the systems we interact with are more complex than any one human mind can figure out. And so it's about, you know, designing and then managing a complex system. Uh, they have to kind of break into parts, understand where the bottlenecks are and know how to delegate. And when you approach it, you have to be able to break it again into parts and then say, okay, how does this affect this other thing? And can you kind of map out this like set of feedback loops for how it's going to function? And I basically apply systems analysis to the macro environment, because if you if you take a step back, the global financial system is an engineered system. Uh, it's not it's not wires and screws, but it's it's banking regulations, it's banking technologies, it's it's structures, it's it's you know this is a human designed system that is understandable. It's complex, and you can understand the feedback loops if you put time into it. Uh, and because it affects so many lives, and because I, I the way I phrase it is we're in a macro heavy environment, whereas in, you know say the 90s was a less macro heavy environment. That was more of a, you know 
buy equities and chill, right? Uh, yeah, where, yeah, whereas, yeah. you know, this this environment post-global financial crisis and especially, you know, the late 2010s going into here, the 2020s, it's a very macro-heavy environment of currencies and commodities and, and crazy yields. And then, you know, then there's a the human element, the rising populism, these tensions that happen, things like that. And so I basically, my, my process is fundamentally it's long-term, right? So I take a three to five year plus view and say, okay, what is attractively valued? What do I want to own long-term? And that's like my fundamental thing. Uh, I have low turnover investing. What is, you know, I don't care about what happens next week in the markets. I have, I care about what happens over the next five, 10 years. Um, I, I, like to, I like to say three to five years because that's more, you know, but I like to, you know, generally you can extend it from there. But at the same time, there is, for example, the purchasing managers index cycle. So it's a measure of economic acceleration or deceleration in rate of change terms. And that's roughly a three-year cycle. So you often have like 18 months of increasing, 18 months of decreasing. And, you you know, so I try to position or at least make people aware of the more tactical things that are happening over, say, a year or a year and a half, even though I'm saying, okay, that, that's the more tactical overlay on top of this more fundamental thing, which is macro and valuations and, and, and kind of long-term trends. What do you say to people who... I mean, I was educated this way as well, where it's like basically, you know what, macroeconomics is a waste of time and nobody can predict all this stuff. There's too many variables. It's it's navel-gazing and you should just focus on what's directly in front of you and what's concrete. How do you address that? Because I completely agree that it has changed and shifted. And if you don't understand how the winds of change are shifting, you're in trouble. But what's your response? So in much of the rest of the, much of the developed world, the past 40 years have been a structurally disinflationary environment with interest rates that started at a very high level and then just gradually went down and down and down and down. And so you pretty much had things going one direction, right? Real estate stock prices up, depending on your country, you know, a big basket of, of assets just go straight up. Interest rates keep going down which allows more and more debt and credit accumulation, which which is what pushes all that up. And so if you just kind of said, I don't care about macro, I just want to, you know, just buy and hold for decades, that can work well. The problem is when you have a major transition point where you go from, you know, 20% interest rates down to 0% interest rates over a 40-year period, and now you're, you know, you're sideways to up now. In addition, I think the, the commodity cycle is very important. It's roughly a 15-year CapEx cycle. So we go through these structural periods of undersupply and then oversupply and undersupply and oversupply. And that, that has a huge fact, uh, impact on things like inflation. Uh, and then when you combine those two, when you, ha- when you hit the end of like a 40-year disinflationary cycle, and then you kind of chop along, and then you run into a, a CapEx undersupply energy commodity cycle, so more inflationary, and then you also get to the end of kind of a globalization trend, which is, you know, that was a disinflationary force that becomes inflationary. It's like you can ignore macro, but macro is not going to ignore you. <laughs> and yeah. so, I mean, you know, how many people, like I started writing about inflation, uh, you know, I started getting people to think about it in 2019 when, you know, the magazine covers were saying inflation's dead. And then once we actually got the catalyst in 2020, I was like, no, no, this is, this is different than we were used to. And now we're sitting here with like, you know, 40 year high inflation in much of the world. And, you know, and so I, I just think that, that we, you have to, a lot of people get confused then, and then they get, and then it goes back to that rising populism. They don't know if you don't have any idea what's happening, or, or you just kind of want to ignore macro, it's going to seem like a random set of surprises. You know, people will say this, this is unprecedented. And it's like, well, it's not unprecedented if you studied monetary history of the forties, for example, and, and, and has some semblance 
of what was going to happen. doesn't mean you predict everything. I mean, things happen that I don't expect. Sometimes even I predict something that's unusual and then it sounds extreme and then a more extreme outcome happens, right? I was a bond bear, but bonds did even worse than I thought, right? So that's, it's, it's like funny. I wasn't bearish enough on the thing I was bearish on compared to the average investor. And so there, there are always surprises. You can't predict things perfectly, but I think you should, ha I think you should be somewhat macro aware, especially when you're at major kind of generational transition points in, in how, you know, the global financial systems it, it changes over time and there are these kind of breakpoints where where changes happen more quickly for the last five years we've worked with over 600 couples and we've helped them to get in sync play to each other's strengths and start making the big money moves and for the first time ever we are lifting the lid on everything we've learned we're running a live online webinar and in this webinar we're going to share exactly how our new money method works and how you can use it to find your financial fast mode and fund your big goals and dreams. If you're ready to get beyond learning and start winning together as a team, all you need to do to secure your spot is hit that link in the episode description below or go to cashflowco.com.au forward slash new money method. And hey, if you're coming along, don't forget to bring your better half. 100%. I was just saying this the other day, like literally we're in an environment where the decision of one man with a small group of people in a room impacts the globe and so i'm sort of like if you're ignorant to that like it's just it's really going to hurt you <laughs> um and it's that's the way it is and uh the analogy that come up for me as you were describing that and explaining it was um, we've been playing on one game board and then the game board's been shifted out with a new set of rules and a lot of people are still playing by the old set of rules thinking that you know nothing's changed and and that's that is a recipe for disaster because as you said you'll be doing things and going why isn't that getting me the results i want why why am i in trouble now and it is because that game board's been shifted out so let's talk more a little bit about the role of history there you touched on it why is it so important to go back and understand monetary history so that ties into the long-term debt cycle uh which was originally put on my radar by ray dalio a well-known hedge fund investor and i don't agree with all of his work but i think that this this particular observation and, and quantification of his was very powerful which is we can take the idea of a short-term credit cycle so three to three to ten year business cycle you know expansion contraction expansion contraction and what you get is you get higher and higher debt during the expansion higher debt to, higher debt to gdp then it's hit by an shock or the central bank kills it something happens you have a contraction you have a deleveraging you have a recession. And at that point, policymakers come in uh, and they try to reinflate it. They say, okay, we're going to cut interest rates. We're going to do some sort of like fiscal policy to try to try to soften the blow here. So they try to get that, that back up. And so when you string multiple of these credit cycles together, instead of looking like a sine wave of debt and economic growth, it looks more like an upward sine wave where you get higher and higher highs and higher lows in terms of debt relative to GDP. And you get lower and lower interest rates, uh, you know, higher highs, higher lows. It keeps it keeps grinding lower. And that's what allows and encourages that higher level of debt accumulation and a debt servicing. And that works until you run into zero or a little bit below zero. And then there's not really much you can do with interest rates and debts are now at super high levels. So when you start running into economic shocks, what do you do? And historically, that's, you know, that's what Dahlia would call a long-term debt cycle. And usually that resolves differently than other cycles, which is mainly generally through a long period of currency devaluation. Basically, instead of instead of deleveraging from the top, you deleverage the denominator, right? So you 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 increase the amount of units so that you, you know instead of decreasing the debt, you you decrease the debt to GDP by increasing nominal GDP a lot because of the currency devaluation. And so 
we can also think of it as like a one-two punch between a private debt bubble and a, and a public debt bubble. So for example, and I look a lot at, I look at global history, but I, I specialize in, in U.S. financial history, which is still relevant because it's currently the global reserve currency to the, you know, and combined with China, to the, to, you know, the two biggest economies that, that influence the rest of the world economically. And so, you know, in the 1920s, you had tons and tons and tons of debt, uh, speculation, growth. And then that, uh, you know, that popped, that, that ran into the, you know, the, this huge deleveraging event. And then that was a, that was a private debt bubble. And when it collapsed, it was disinflationary, uh, even though that there was currency devaluation, like, you know, gold pegs, you know, being ruined and, you know, there's fiscal responses that was mostly offsetting a very deflationary outcome. And so you didn't really have high inflation. You just had a, a very disinflationary, deleveraging, ugly environment. And then that that bred resentment, bred populism, You kind of grinded through it. And that populism actually is what a lot in many cases led to World War Two. Uh, it was kind of like World War One in some cases never really ended, and then so we went into that whole period, and the 40s were a very inflationary decade because over time what we did was we put that p- private debt onto the sovereign debt, right? So we built up all the sovereign debt, many countries, uh, and ran massive fiscal deficits that were then monetized by the central bank. Central banks held interest rates below the inflation rate, so you, you devalued a lot of currency, you had a lot of money supply growth. And then that eventually, of course, resolved itself. Uh, it was not good for bondholders or cash holders. Obviously, it wasn't good for soldiers and, in many cases, civilians. But that eventually ended. And what I've been making the case now is that in many ways, the 2000s were like the 1920s. We had, we had kind of rampant speculation. Uh, uh, basically, you hit a private debt bubble peak, so record private debt to GDP in the United States and, and a number of other countries, not every country. Then you had a big collapse. In the global financial crisis, then you had you know various policymaker responses, but those are mostly just offsetting some of this deleveraging that was happening. You did not have a big increase in money supply, broad money supply. You did not have a lot of inflation, and that kind of just grinded sideways for a while. You get rising populism uh, in many parts of the world. You know we have, have kind of cracks in the way that the system designed globally, and when that kind of fractured system ran into COVID. Uh, you know, uh, and, and rising geopolitical tensions. Uh, you had these huge fiscal responses that were monetized. And you're, again, we're getting a very inflationary environment. And I've argued that 2020s are a lot like the 1940s. Uh, and there are charts that I've shown that show these kind of eerie similarities. Um, and so that's how I've been interpreting this environment, which is more of like a wartime finance, you know, public debt bubble. So now all the debts on the on the sovereign, well, not all the debt, but there's a lot of debt on the sovereign level for most countries. Australia is like an exception, but, you know, if you look at the at most European countries, you look at Canada, you look at uh, the United States, mostly what we've done is we've taken debt out of the private sector. We're not, you know, we just stopped growing in the private sector in many cases. It's still usually high in the private sector, but we, we kind of put a lid on it. Now we put all uh, extra debt on the sovereign level, and that's where they, that's more inflationary. That's when you're kind of monetizing fiscal deficits, you're increasing the money supply, uh, and then of course you run into a period of undersupply and energy, then you add war to the mix, so you further add frictions. You also kind of reverse some of these globalization trends we've been doing. So we had, you know, three, three four decades of opening up of China, opening up of Eastern Europe, opening up of all these, these regions of capital, and you know, especially for China, that's in many cases behind us now. We've already globalized. And so there's, there's, we, we used to hold down domestic wages by hiring Chinese people instead. And that's really, that's not really, uh, there's not like, you know, they, they're kind of hitting a demographics peak. There's rising geopolitical tensions. 
And so some of that is kind of ricocheting back into the developed world in terms of, of wage pressures that can't be held down anymore. And so I think we're at a, just a more inflationary and stagflationary type of environment in general. There's so much you said there that I want to unpack. Part of it is how you said central banks monetize fiscal kind of deficits. Can you explain a little bit more about that mechanism? Because I think it's quite important for people to understand how, I guess, the, the, the financing changes in those periods. Right. So if, if you go back as a counterexample to the global financial crisis, right? So banking system collapses, the Fed does a lot of QE. Now, people, some people at the time thought that'd be hyperinflationary. Uh, but it wasn't because if you're an everyday worker, are you getting more money in your checking and savings account to spend? No, right? So why would there's not more money chasing fewer goods? Uh, instead, what they're doing is they're they're creating new bank reserves and they're buying treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. And they're essentially what they're doing is they're recapitalizing the banking system. You know, you had a very big ratio of broad money, which is all the credit money that banks create. You know, your 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 deposit at the bank is a claim on on credit essentially, and what they're doing is they're increasing the the monetary base so that the ratio between broad money and the monetary base is not as crazy as it was, right? So that's a yes. that's a bank recapitalization. It's kind of anti-deflationary. It's anti-collapse, but it's not acutely inflationary in the same way. It's that, not in the real economy. Yeah, the money's not in the yeah. real economy. Yeah. And of course, there were you know there were some fiscal programs in different countries. You know, like we we gave out you know these little like tax credits for cars and like you know try ways to try to kickstart the economy and kind of offset that but it wasn't like a huge uh impact now what makes this different is it's not just qe to recapitalize banks they would into this well capitalized at least in 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 say north america europe's a little bit of a different story but you know a lot of banks went into this situation well capitalized and so the qe was to monetize large fiscal deficits helicopter money so so you know, send out loans to businesses that you forgive, send out stimulus checks, send out energy credits, send out child care tax credits, bail out certain uh, uh, key corporations. Uh, you know, different countries handled it differently. And but there's a lot of money that's going out. And that's where actually the, the typical person does have more money in their bank account and they spend some of it. And so you have a demand surge for a number of things, especially because you had a rotation of the type of things you can and can't buy during a, you know, lockdowns and travel restrictions and that sort of thing. And then you add, you know, you so you have a, a big increase in the broad money supply, which is very different, right? So broad money is generally created in one of two ways. Either banks are lending new money into existence, they're, they're multiplying the money, or you're running very, very large fiscal deficits, right? Uh, and then you're monetizing that. So, you know, it's not being sucked out of the private sector through bond issuance. Uh, instead, the bonds are being issued and the central bank is buying them with just new base money creation. Uh, and that's so that monetization. That's you're that talking monetization. About. So money's being directed yeah. into the economy, and it's not being pulled out of any you know private sector area. So just it's a net add, and that's that's what makes that it's fiscal plus QE is a lot more inflationary than QE on its own. Yeah, and I think that's the really important point to get is that's where we are. That's where we've just been, and that's why we're seeing all the problems we have because of exactly what you've said, but also that also underlying. Uh, structural problems with supply in energy and a bunch of other things because of uh, of COVID. So that's that kind of perfect storm. Um, and it does remind me, we had Jeff Booth on the show and he talked about, he kind of gave the analogy of the Monopoly game and saying, oh, you're struggling to get around the board. I'm going to give you a little bit more money and you just struggle to get around the board again. And so it's we just, we just keep it going. But what ends up happening is there's more money chasing the same amount of lots. 
And so the prices of everything goes up and that's why things are getting harder. Is that a fair kind of summary of what we're saying? Yeah. And then the challenge there is that when they hand out the money, it's not even, right? And so in the United States, for example, we did PPP loans where a small business could collect a, a loan that's forgiven. It sounds like a good idea. And of course, you know, you don't want the, your local restaurant to go out of business because they were forced to lock down. The problem, of course, is that there's like asset managers and law firms. They're like, oh, let me get in on this, right? And so they were in trouble to begin with. And then you basically give a wealthy person a million dollars that's forgiven. And then, you know, the down the street, you give like, you know, Mary, the school teacher, you know, a thousand dollar stimulus check and then another you know six hundred dollars stimulus check. And you give her some tax credits and, you know, she gets like several thousand dollars. But the, the lawyer down the street or the asset manager CEO that wasn't going to lay off anybody anyway, he got like a million dollars. And, you know, so all of that is inflationary pressure, but people get diluted at different rates. And so most people get more money, the money, more money chasing, you know, few or similar amounts of goods. So some things are in short supply, like cars, other things we still have a decent amount of, but there's, you know, basically more money chasing fewer goods and prices go up. And, you know, some people are net advantaged because they got so much money handed to them that even after the dilution, they still have a bigger share than they had before. Other people did not get much, and yet they still got diluted, right? And so that's that's the challenge, that it's almost impossible to do that in an ethical and, and organized and fair way. And that goes that goes to the idea of the cantillion effect, that the closer you are to the money, you know, you, you generally get it first and more advantagely. And if you're on the periphery, you're less likely to, to get the most favorable terms. Uh, so I think that's, yeah. that's the, and that, that contributes to that populism and that, that challenge. Yeah, and that's um, I guess that's why it's so important to understand history because of what you say. We've seen all this before when we get to these stages in that long-term debt cycle. Populism does rise because it isn't fair the way that it's created and people don't know exactly what's going on, but they have a sense that something's not right. And I think this is where something I do agree with Ray on is um, he says, when people care more about the causes than they do about the system, then the system's in jeopardy. Yeah. And, you know, we talked about that kind of changing world order. And I see that every day now. Everyone's got a cause. Everyone's got something they think's the most important thing. Everybody's outraged about something. But it, the root cause of all of it is this game that we're playing isn't fair. I'm seeing people, yeah, where people are has nothing to do with the value they've created. It's everything to do with how close they are to that printer, as you've described. And, and I think people, as a sense, as a collective, can can feel that they just can't put their finger on it and that's why we have all these causes that are, that are coming at us every day yeah we're basically all using as as a society we're using like a shared ledger a shared game board and people near the top of that can change the ledger can change the game board in a way that favors them and so for example in the u.s global financial crisis you had the whole you know housing blew up banking blows blows up homeowners did not really get bailed out but people got million dollar bonuses at banks that were failing and they were given loans right when they needed it, right when all liquidity dries up, all assets get super cheap, certain certain banks get big loans that they can then go out and take advantage of that situation, right? And so that's kind of this, this unfair, flexible game board. And you get people on both, in a, in a given country's political spectrum, on people on the, both the right and the left and all the different all the different parts of that whole political quadrant that people fall into, they all, they all experience it in different ways, express it in different ways, but very few people are like, no, yeah, this is a great system. I love it. It's, it's working great. You know, it's like everybody has different things they're most enraged about, but I think uh, there's an underlying, you know, humans have a pretty innate sense of fairness that I think has been violated over the past, call it 15 years or more. 
Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty shocking too to see that all these uh, public employees selling their shares before interest rates start to rise and just you know, timing things exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> when, uh, you know, they're not supposed to be using that information in that way. So demographics is part of this too, right? So it's debt and demographics as this kind of contributing factor. What's your view on, I guess, that concept of fourth turning and like where we are generationally and how much of an impact that has with regards to what we're likely to see going forward? So I think, you know, fourth turning is when basically all the institutions that were built over the prior, you know, it's called 80 years. Uh, So I describe that the fourth turning is like the qualitative aspect of what's happening. And the the long-term debt cycle is like the quantitative debt thing that's happening, right? And so um, when you look at the, we already talked about the debt part, but the the qualitative part, you have the rising populism because the system's no longer working. And a lot of that ties into the fact that during the prior fourth turning, which was the 40s, uh, you know, 30s and 40s, that's when a lot of the institutions that we that we know today were, were built, essentially, or, you know, in that kind of era. So, you know, that's where the global financial system was, was structured. That's where, you know, we had the birth a lot of these organi- organizations. You're the rise of, of media as we know it, right? These, like, you know, the establishment media. Uh, and so you have these kind of systems that were built for a different time, and over the course of time, just entropy takes its toll. Corruption takes its toll. Just things that, that, that were, were at one point energized and excited start to become stagnant incumbents, right? And that, that happens in, in industry too. And so both government and industry, this is happening. And so we're kind of at, a, at an era where people feel like the institutions are not serving them. And I would say that's largely true. And so they're kind of building new institutions and those conflict with some of the old ones. Uh, at the at the same time as you go go back to those macro things I talked about, which is super high debt, and then you're running into you know scarcities. And the challenge with demographics is that you know, for example, you know I I, I keep using United States example, but you know our Social Security program when they invented that, you had something like you know 20 workers paying into it for every one person who's retired. And then now it's like, you know, three workers paying into it for everyone that's retired. And so it's a much more top heavy system, especially if you're one of those young people and you're like, well, social security might not even be around for me. And yet I'm putting like, you know, this huge chunk of my paycheck into it for, for people that gave themselves promises they didn't fully pay for. Uh, and so, you know, that's and that that's another way to phrase it is when one country ages. That's disinflationary for that country. So if Japan, for example, is one of the oldest countries in the world, if they age, that's very disinflationary. If the whole world ages, that's actually inflationary because there's not enough workers to support all the demand that exists for things, right? And I think that's what that's where I disagree with some of the disinflationary folks that they, they look at demographics, they look how disinflationary that is. I'm like, well, yeah, in, in isolation, but when the whole world kind of reaches that top-heavy state, that's challenging unless we get, say, robots and automation advanced enough to, you know, replace our labor problems, which could happen at one point, but it's not around the corner, you know. So you have kind of labor shortages in some areas uh, and you have a very kind of aged and top heavy population. Even China's getting to that point now. Mm. Yeah, it's, uh, it is an interesting period. And it seems to be that, as you've said, like when you look back and you understand this, it's important to understand how humans behave and respond, but it's also important to understand how policymakers respond and as you've said currency devaluation or continue putting more money into supply tends to be the way that we deleverage and is this the way you think it's going to play out as well like we've got to so much levels of debt that the only way we can handle it is to devalue the currency and do that at the expense of people who are in cash and cash instruments i think over the long term i think right now the federal reserve's trying their best to fight back 
you know, we have something called the Taylor rule, which is basically, you know, you take these inputs and that determines what your interest rate should be. You know, as an, and, and, you know, it's generally higher than the inflation rate, right? So if inflation's 8%, Taylor rule, and, and you take into account a couple other variables, like what is nominal GDP doing, right? You should have like, you know, 8.5% interest rates, let's call it, right? So it's like, if you're serious about tackling inflation, why not jack rates up to 8, 9%? And of course, the answer is it would, it would blow up the world, right? And so, you know, what would, what would federal interest expense look like when you have 130% debt to GDP and you're paying 8% interest on it? Uh, what would what would mortgages look like? What would corporate debt look like when they, when they you know, they all got suckered into borrowing at super low interest rates and then, and then interest rates get, you know, quadrupled or quintupled and then, you know, they start refinancing their bonds that mature and they're, they're that's all now they're insolvent, right? And so, so they they do have pressures on on how much they can tighten, you know, before it causes acute problems, and that that is generally a number that's below the prevailing inflation rate. Maybe you get above it for periods of time, but then that that becomes unsustainable when you have that super high debt to GDP ratio, and so something breaks, and then they, you know, they reliquify it again, and we keep we keep going, and so I I do think we're in an environment where. You know, there are periods of time where you can get disinflationary periods within an inflationary decade, and you can have you can have uh, you know periods of fighting back, right? So I've described it as like uh, Empire Strikes Back, right? So there's Star Wars, you know, you, you you kill the Death Star, but then the the second movie is you know Darth Vader Strikes Back, right? So we had this big inflationary impulse, and now you know the Fed and others are trying to get their grips on it. They're like, we're not just gonna, we're not going to let this run away from us. But my view is that they can tighten, but they can't normalize. So they can't just get back to a normal period, put all put all this Pandora's box back together and go from there. I think that we're going through these kind of more violent cycles in terms of policy, in terms of inflation, in terms of shocks to the system. And I think this is going to be a, a longer run story, at least until we get we fix some of the energy situations more, more soundly uh, and we, we kind of... Um, rebuild our system so that we're not expecting just continual globalization. Mm. It feels like it's all about credibility. Like they've lost a lot of credibility, even in Australia here. So we got, everyone was told, um, you know, we won't be raising rates till 2024 at least. Inflation is transitory. This is not a problem. And raising those rates again, I feel like it's just, it's a way to keep themselves relevant, basically. <laughs> like um, saying, you know, we're, we're here, we're making these moves. But as you say, if you were really serious about inflation, then your interest rate would be at or above what the actual CPI rate is. And it cannot get there. It can't get there. And in Australia, like we see this, we see guys cash flows all the time. If, if the federal funds rate was exceeding CPI, all most of our people would be insolvent yeah. um, very, very quickly. And so just it's a it's it's never gonna happen. It can't happen to that level, as you said, for any period of time. They might try for a period, but as you say, it will cause a lot of havoc and it'll be a short short term live thing and then we'll go back to the game that we always play, which is reliquify things, keep the can down the road and But how, how much longer can we do this, Lynn? It feels like we're right at the end of this because uh, Currencies have lost so much value over the last hundred years. Yeah, I think, but I think this decade is where a lot of things come to head, right? So, um, you know, like in the forties, you 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 got down to much lower debt to GDPs, not because you deleveraged, but because you you know uh, changed the denominator quite a bit. Uh, and I think you know when we're looking back here in say twenty thirty two, you know, I think it's going to have been a wild ride, especially for currencies. That that's kind of my expectation, and and. Part of that comes down to what happens with energy, right? And so, you know, can we get, can the world get back to a state of abundant and cheap energy or is that going to be a constant struggle? 
And, you know, there's basically there's wrong moves and there's right moves. And, you know, I think that goes back to the hierarchy of, of values I talked about, right? So, and that, that's where some of those debates have to happen. And, you know, uh, so I, I think that they're at the point where, you know, if they, if the Fed, for example, fails to tighten enough to get inflation under control, um, or if they briefly get it under control and then they pause and then inflation juice back up again, that's kind of a checkmate scenario, right? So we've already, you know, Japan's in checkmate, right? So they're doing yield curve control uh, when they're faced with high inflation. ECBs, you know, they've, they're facing double-digit inflation, but they're still buying Southern European debt because they have to, to keep spreads under control. We, we had to see the Bank of England come in and buy bonds with 10% inflation, which not that wasn't their intention. And the Fed's the one that's still holding the line, uh, as well as some others. Uh, Bank of Canada's pretty tight. Uh, I, haven't, I haven't checked Australia's rates lately. Uh, you know, but there are a number of, of countries that are holding the line, and especially the Fed is the biggest. I mean, if they get to a point where they they can't keep tightening, but inflation is still hot, that's kind of a regime change. And I think that that you know is, a, is kind of a final blow to credibility. And you know, you, you probably would have some pretty big bids for other assets. And also, you know, we're seeing kind of shifts geopolitically. You know, Saudi Arabia wants to join the, the BRICS nations, for example. Um, and I think that, you know, overall geopolitics and alliances could look a lot different 10 years from now than they look like today. And that can have implications for inflation and, you know, energy scarcity or abundance and things like that. Yeah, well, it's, I can speak for Australia around like where things are at and our reserve bank just slowed down. It's it's right, right. It's oh, right that's hikes. right. Yeah, now I remember they, um, they did that. Was it a 25 basis point hike? They, they decided to pause. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's just, it's indicative of, I guess the difference here is, um, you know, we're a lot more sensitive to interest rate rises because most of our debt's at the private level. It's in corporations, it's in household And a lot debt, of it's adjustable. Mortgages. Yeah. And the majority of it, yeah, is is variable. So we're really sensitive to it. Um, and I think that's why it's, it's different for us. But, you know, our treasurer just said as well, the hard thing here is that if we don't raise at the same rates that America does, um, it's actually more expensive for us to import the goods, which is inflationary in it of itself yep. as well. So we're kind of we're kind of stuck there because of this, and it's hard to know how things are going to play out. But w- what would your advice be for the average working person, young professional, with a you know a ten year time horizon for decisions? How would you protect yourself firstly, and then also how could you prosper and profit from this period of change and transition? So I think one is, well, one is make sure your profession's like, you know, in long-term demand. And, and you know, I think the average person, the key is not to, you know, fo- focus on your portfolio. Second, the first is focusing on your skill sets uh, and and doing the best at what you do, right? And so, and that can be regardless of what you're doing, you want to be the, you want to just be positioned for it and then be really good at it so that you're always in demand to, to earn value. Uh, I think that's number one. Number two, with your portfolio, I think you want to do a, a, a review of assets that you could own and say what is scarce and what is not really scarce. So you don't own the things that are not scarce, or at least you know you underweight them, you're careful with them. And then with things that are scarce, you then do a valuation check. You say, okay, what is maybe in a bubble, right? Uh, it could be scarce, but maybe it just went up 10X. Maybe it doesn't matter if it's scarce. Maybe it's just too, it's too over-owned, for example. So you filter out some of that and you say, okay, what is both scarce and in a reasonable valuation? And I think a lot of things you'll find are things that did not particularly do well the last decade. I mean, if you look at like the U.S. energy sector, you know, it's, it's been like sideways for like, you know, 15 years while, you know, FANG stocks just, just soared, right? And so, and they're cheap and they have decent balance sheets and I think their product's going to be in demand and expensive for quite a while. And 
so I, you know, I, I generally find infrastructure interesting, right? Because all the replacement values are now much higher because of inflation. Labor's labor's more expensive too. These are very labor intensive and capital intensive and materials intensive things that exist, and now the replacement costs are higher. So I like hard assets you know, pipelines and, and other things like that. I also like commodity producers. Uh, I lean towards energy, uh, but also I like copper. I'm just careful about copper on the down cycles, right? So I'm a little bit more, a little bit more nimble in my copper positions, but I like copper. I like diversified materials. Uh, and then I like just different types of dividend producing things. So, I, I, you know, in this kind of defensive environment, things like healthcare stocks, for example, I've been emphasizing. And then I think, you know, you know, depending on on where you live, uh, you know, real estate it's more challenging, obviously, in Australia because of the the, the valuations. Are, that's an example, of something that's you know got scarcity to it, but the valuations are very high. Countries like Australia or Canada or, or, or China, and then there's things like gold or Bitcoin, which are basically scarce money. So you can print in any number of dollars or Aussie dollars or euros or yen or uh, rupees, but you know, gold is something that's created very slowly. Same with Bitcoin. And so I think I think non-zero allocations to you know kind of these you know depending on how how much someone understands them and what their age is and what their allocation is you know non-zero exposure to to harder monies is I think a, a good way to round out some of those other things that that focus on cash flows. I also think that you know some some select emerging market allocations are interesting things like Brazil or India over the next ten years mm-hmm. uh, I think are promising, mm-hmm. and you just have to be careful about position sizing. So a lot of that, a lot of that comes with the assumption that you want to be more, I guess, active or involved in those decisions. If you are shifting more towards the passive end of the spectrum because you want to really just focus mostly on your career, how would you, I guess, expose yourself in that way or change your exposure in a way that doesn't require you to be continuously looking at what you need to, you know, researching down to the depths of all these things? Is there an easier way to do that? Yeah, so some of that I would put into ETF form. Right. So I'd have some sort of like ETF exposure to global energy producers or global commodity producers. That's kind of an inflation hedge against maybe some of your other assets that, you know, would prefer to be disinflationary because they want lower interest rates. They want to to grow. You know, you can you can set aside some gold Bitcoin, not think about it, you know, as long as your position sizes are fair. Uh, and you can own their ETFs that, you know, you can focus on, say, dividend paying companies, for example. Um, you know, and I, so I think I think that there are ways to do that that are low turnover and relatively simple. And then of course, if someone has expertise, they can overweight that area that they're interested in, right? So for example, with me, I, I don't really know about biotech. If I'm gonna to touch it, I'll touch it with an ETF. Whereas, you know, I wanna get more into some of these other things that I've talked about, right? So I, I'm more hands-on in some areas that I feel like I know what I'm doing and I'm hands-off in, in areas where I have, I have no edge. Let's just dive in on Bitcoin here for a second. You are someone that I learned a lot from around Bitcoin and probably one of the more objective voices in the space that made me really take it seriously. What is it about Bitcoin that you like? So for a number of years, people were trying to make a digital currency, uh, basically to, to create scarcity in a digital realm, which is a, which is all about non-scarcity. I mean, you can copy a file endlessly to, with no cost. Um, and so there are a number of advancements like Hashcash by Adam Back, which is you know kind of the invention of proof of work, uh, Hal Finney, uh, put that into a thing where you could kind of mint like a digital collectible. Uh, the problem was it was it was reliant on a centralized server. 
There were other things like Chalmy and eCash. There was eGold, which basically it allowed you to own grams of gold that you could also uh, trade with other people. That was shut down. It was centralized. So there's all these kind of like these centralized attempts to either create online currency that's backed by something or online currency that's backed by energy, and they're just kind of inherently scarce. And the problem is they were all centralized. And in 2008, uh, Satoshi Nakamoto took a lot of these pieces and said, hey, you've all done great work. I've fixed, you know, I've got that final piece, which is how to do this decentralized. There's no central server. Uh, it's a it's a blockchain with a bunch of peers and using combination of proof of work and timestamping and difficulty adjustments to make this shared ledger that anyone with an internet connection can access globally. And it's a ledger that is very hard to change. It takes a lot of energy to uh, you know, interact to, to basically append new transactions onto it. And that, that energy is important because that's what keeps it fair. That's what keeps it from being, you know, uh, you know, reversed and, and, and censored and messed with. And then also by running your own node, which takes, you know, almost no energy, just, you know, you know, basic, basic hardware, basic internet connection, you can verify your own transactions, you can transact privately, and there's really no centralized third party that can stop you from transacting. And so what essentially what it does is it creates this, it's like decentralized money in a cloud, right? So instead of on Google servers, it's it's on everyone's, it's on, you know, the node network, right? It, it's, it's There's no centralized third party, but it's still cloud-like. And so, for example, you know, previously, if you wanted to send money long distances, you had to go through your banking system and then the central banking system uh, to reach the target. So it was, it was a permissioned closed system. And what this does is this is, okay, now it's peer-to-peer. Right, so anyone with an internet connection can send money to anyone else with an internet connection, and it, it goes through this this more decentralized collection of miners and nodes, rather than a centralized entity that is like you know a human in the middle saying no. And so as long as the incentives of that network remain intact, now you have peer-to-peer money. And then by extension, you also have self-custodial savings that are non-physical. And so, for example, you can save in gold, but for example. You know, and I've, I've worked with human rights activists and things like that. I've met them. I've, I've heard their stories. Like I went to the Oslo Freedom Forum, for example, uh, in Norway. And half the right now, half the world lives under authoritarianism, right? Uh, different different degrees of authoritarianism. And, you know, a lot of them want to live in freer countries or they want to be able to transact or they want to be able to, you know, do something online that they can get paid for. You know, maybe they want to do graphic design for someone in another country and they want to get paid for that. Right, and there's not a lot, not a lot of opportunities in their countries. Well, something like Bitcoin gives them a tool. Uh, it also say, you know, protesters in some countries they can get their bank account frozen. Uh, happened in, in Nigeria, for example. They're protesting police violence, bank account shut down, turn to Bitcoin. And you know, and also, there's also other tools like stable coins. They're more centralized, but for for some applications, they also provide uh, you know tools to people in these types of situations because it's centralized, but the central hub is outside of their country. Which, which gives it degree of separation. But bringing it back to Bitcoin, you know, you can, for example, I can memorize 12 words and I can go through an airport, fly anywhere in the world, you know, anywhere with internet connection and, and, you know, basic stuff like that. And I can reconstitute my ability to access my Bitcoin. So, I, you know, I can't bring unlimited gold through an airport. I can't bring unlimited cash through an airport. Uh, you know, my stocks are, are custodied in a broker. There's all sorts of regulations, or, you know, but the Bitcoin, uh, it's portable value. It's it's my keys to this decentralized ledger, um, and so and it's you know it's the most secure, it's the most decentralized, and that's kind of that's that's where it stands. And then people are building on top of it to make it easier to access, to make layers on top of it that allow it to be faster and more scalable. 
then you have all these other you know kind of competitors you can call them right and so there's there's you have to analyze market share and trade-offs and understand the the, the you know the trade-offs that those other things are making and it's a, it's it's hard because it's new and it's somewhat technical but I, I like to say that it, if anyone looked underneath the current global financial system uh it's it's a lot more complex than bitcoin and so you know and it's most of it's abstracted you just have dollars in your account you send dollars you know most people it's abstracted from them and so bitcoin in many for many users is like that where it's you know the, the details are abstracted and then to, the more you want to learn about it and maybe master a little bit more, you can go ahead and kind of go down that rabbit hole. And then you have a set of tools that, you know, is, is now interesting because now you're accessing a global network of peer-to-peer transfers and self-custodial savings. Yeah, and it's interesting, isn't it? Like in the physical world, everything's moving away from cooperation and collaboration towards conflict. But in the digital world, the Bitcoin side of things is actually moving more towards cooperation, collaboration um, around this network and the growth of this network because it is something that demands that, and it's the only way that it works. Yeah, and there, are, I mean, there are more people have like phones than they have bank accounts in the world. Uh, you know, we're in our countries a lot. You know, we all have bank accounts, but in, in a lot of the world, you have phone but no bank account, and now those money can get payment. You know, those people can get payment from each other or from someone in, in another country, right? So there's even services like you can pay you know, Bitcoin over lightning to people that are willing to do micro tasks that are generally in developing countries. And you're just kind of not getting anyone's permission. You're just kind of going around the system peer to peer. And it, it provides opportunity to people to, to, to work online. Um, and so it's, I think it's really interesting. I'm glad that people put the technical pieces together to make this possible. And then now it's up to people to see how far they can run with it um, and, and what they can make of it. Yeah. And you know what's interesting is when you say that, uh, you know, no one. You don't need anyone's permission. It, it's it all sounds interesting, but when you actually do it. So when I took my Bitcoin off the exchange into cold storage, it was a very different experience. It was a bit, like I really had to kind of sit and think about what just happened, because there was a fundamental shift in how money went from somebody else somewhere to me. And once you do understand the complexities of the current system, and then you understand Bitcoin, you go, that's like a step change that really won't be understood for another probably 30, 40 years because it's huge in terms of the difference between how that how that value moves from one place to, to the next, who's involved and what they're doing. I, I kind of compared it to like, I mean, I don't know if it's the same, but I thought, you know, if you've been, if you've been using oil um, and then all of a sudden you started using electricity, you were using a light switch, you were like, wow, that's wild. That's pretty much, <laughs> um, yeah. We just, yeah, Bitcoin yeah. is like the electricity to a world that was previously like whale oil for candles. And, you know, one thing I like to, I like to point out is that, you know, most people are familiar with um, Error 404 online. You know, you, you try to go web web page that doesn't exist and it's like Error 404 not found. There's an Error 402 that fewer people know about. It's actually earlier in the, in the error list, which is basically payment required, right? So you go and it says payment required and it's mostly unused. When they made it, and this was made in like the late 80s, the early 90s, that was just reserved. They were like, they were assuming that there'd be some sort of e-cash that can go there right and and you know it was just mostly not used and it's like well you know in 2008 and 2009 we we finally got kind of a workable decentralized e-cash right and and or at least like a settlement that then e-cash can be built on top of and that's 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 where we're in now where before you could pay online but you're still going through the banking rails it's just like a it's just like a beachhead for banks to be able to, to you know 
run on run online, whereas with this is a step change, which is just, it goes around the banking system, and it's 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 just internet native money, or even yeah. like you can even yeah. broadcast a transaction over radio. Technically, I mean, it's just it, it's non-bank money. Yeah, and and I, this is where I think another one of Ray Jai's insights is instructive for me. Is he's like on the longer term timeframes, life supports what supports life, and I think about what's good for humanity not just a few individuals. Generally, that's what prevails in the long run, not necessarily in the short term, but in the long run. And so that's why I, I'm kind of interested in it as well. Um, as you said, you don't know how it's going to play out, but I know what I'm voting for and it's not a system where a few people win at everybody else's expense. Yeah, um, I, I think basically a more transparent, open network, open source. I think we're we're, you know, we're in a world that's moving towards open source, open you know, emails like a protocol that anyone in the world can you anyone in the world can use bad people can use it good people can use it everybody has email as long as they have you know basic internet connection things like that and bitcoin's like that right so technology can be used for good or bad most people are good they'll use it for good and it's one of those things where you know a lot of people in developed worlds are like you know this is like a solution without a problem or you know and it's like well talk to someone in argentina or or talk to some talk to some of my lebanese readers who you know they, they just had like their savings eviscerated. You know, even even in some of these countries, you try to hold dollars, for example, and the bank system's like, oh, I see you have dollars there. I'm going to go ahead and take those and give you the local currency at the exchange rate that we choose. Sorry. And so is, is it shocking that people turn to like Tether or Bitcoin where they, you know, it's either decentralized like Bitcoin or it's centralized, but at least outside of their country like Tether. And then they say, you know, I don't trust this system anymore. I don't trust this like their fiat currency is a ledger that they're, government and their central bank is managing and especially the long tail of currencies. So let's say, let's even take out the top 10, the long tail of currencies are just like sad stories over and over again. And it's like, there's not savings vehicles. And so, you know, Bitcoin kind of starts from there. It's like global money. And and for them, it also, like I said, the stable coins give like dollar, you know, people that want dollars now more access to dollars that, you know, it doesn't sound like, you know, if you're in a developed country, you're like, why, you know, why, why is that a big deal? But if you're in Argentina, you know why it's a big deal um, or Turkey or, or Lebanon or whatever. And so, you know, or, or like, you know, someone who, you know, was a woman in Afghanistan and, and left the country and was able to take her Bitcoin with her, whereas she would not have been able to take other types of valuables with her. Right. And that's, you know, that's, that's a human rights issue. Um, and so I'm, I'm, bullish on that i'm bullish on what it means to have an open network that doesn't care what your nationality is it doesn't care what your race is it doesn't care what your what your gender is it doesn't care if you're right or left or you're young or old it doesn't care it just it doesn't there's no the system doesn't even know it just is a system it's just like email uh and so as long as you have that kind of basic tech integration you're good to go and so i think I, I, that's the world i'd like to see more of me, me too. I know we're coming to the end of our time here. I've just got one more question for you around how Bitcoin and the energy industry are starting to converge. I saw a tweet of yours recently and I can't remember the exact words, but it was along the lines of it's going to be awkward when these environmentalists who are supposedly so anti-Bitcoin realize that Bitcoin's becoming carbon negative. I don't know if that's exactly right, but can you explain more of what you kind of meant by that? So a couple of things. One is that even under the current environment, I mean, Bitcoin uses something like 0.1% of global energy. It's less than like, you know, tumble dryers, for example. And yet it, it just provides all of the, the you know, what I just previously described, that kind of global permissionless money, which 
you know, for, that's for, the benefit. Yeah, yeah, that's the benefit. So I, I consider as is, it's already good. Now, what's interesting is that, you know, Bitcoin is the miners are hyper competitive. It's a very commoditized industry. And so they have to find the absolute cheapest energy. And the cheapest energy is stranded energy, right? So, so Bitcoin miners don't go to Midtown Manhattan instead of a mining operation there, right? Because that's where that's not where cheap electricity is. That's where there's a lot of demand for electricity. They go, they find stranded energy. This like you know a hydro dam that's like you know it's being underutilized. So a lot of the electricity is being curtailed, right? Or you know, things like that. They they go and find these like unused energy and they say, hey. Instead of getting zero for that electricity, let me pay you two cents a kilowatt hour, right? And so it's basically this like, you know, almost like uh, you, you drop breadcrumbs on the ground and then ants come and get those breadcrumbs, right? That's what Bitcoin miners are trying to do with energy. So even the energy they use is mostly non-rival wasted energy. And yeah. basically the observation is getting even more so. So, you know, in the, in the early stage of the industry, it was like, you know, you still kind of maybe build a facility out in, in the rural area. You, you want to tap into the grid but there are now increasing ones where you can go and like the, you know landfills for example are releasing methane right they're just releasing methane it's a more potent greenhouse gas than co2 you also have oil wells where they they get a little bit of natural gas with the well and it's not enough to make a pipeline so they just burn it they just flare it away and the problem is you know it, landfill gas it's just methane leaking into the atmosphere it's very co2 intensive it's very uh, greenhouse gas intensive and then when you flare natural gas it's not 100 percent. some of it leaks into the atmosphere as methane um and what bitcoin, bitcoin miners can come and do and say hey we can you know we can buy that we can we can you know we can build a system we can turn that methane into electricity and then we can burn it and it actually turns it into co2 which is less greenhouse gas intensive and so there's calculations that show something like three percent of the bitcoin network were to start using this landfill mine and there's already a decent chunk of it using that that strain of natural gas. You can have the whole network be ironically greenhouse gas negative, where you know they're taking out enough methane to offset the rest of the CO2 emissions, and so that the whole network is is you know emission free, and or at least emission on, on net negative. That basically there's methane that would otherwise be getting into the atmosphere that is now not, and instead it's being converted to less intense CO2 only because Bitcoin miners are willing to go out and do it and pay for it. And so I think that we're going to see more integration between Bitcoin miners and stranded energy. Any ones that are not integrated are probably going to have trouble staying in, in profit because they're, you know, if you're paying almost anything above zero for electricity as a Bitcoin miner, you're doing it wrong uh, in the long run. And so I, I think that's the way to think about it. So, and I, I'm, you know, I, I think it's a really interesting opportunity. There's also the more renewables or, uh, you know, the more variable energy sources you add to the grid the more kind of curtailed energy you, you tend to have. And so we see that a lot in the United States and in, in, in Texas, you know, we have a lot of solar and wind and you have a lot of like negative energy pricing. And that's where something like a, a, a flexible demand source that, you know, can kind of go out to on site and co-locate with that and pay you, uh, you know, one cent a kilowatt hour, two cent a kilowatt hour uh, to, to soak up that extra electricity, you know, comes in handy. And so I think that's I think that's that merger between Bitcoin miners and energy producers is probably going to continue. Yeah, and I think it's just where people really don't don't understand it. They think that Bitcoin is using the energy that other people need to be using, and it just as you say they can't afford to. If you're paying more than two or three cents a kilowatt hour, you're not profitable as a miner, and so it's better for you to not mine. Is that right? Yeah, I mean it, it, the economics change over time, but right now it's particularly hard and. 
basically the more profitable it is, the more miners come on, and yet the, the same number of Bitcoin are generated every 10 minutes. So the more miners come on, the less Bitcoin each miner gets. Uh, and so they, you better be hyper competitive, especially in a bear market. And there's always cases. There's always, you know, it's a big enough industry. There's always a case where like, you know, Bitcoin miner came to town, bills went up or, you know, but it's like, that's a self-corrective thing. That doesn't just stay there forever. I mean, the miner's not just going to stay there. Uh, that, that's basically, especially in the early stages, you had some sloppy miners, but over the longer time, the efficiency, the industry gets more and more efficient. And you have a case where, you know, miners are adapt at going out and picking out the stranded super cheap energy that, that no one else is able to monetize because they don't have the combination of flexibility. You know, they data centers, for example, need high uptime and high bandwidth, whereas a Bitcoin miner can have low uptime and low bandwidth. They just need a basic internet connection. They can shut off during certain hours of the day because, you know, as long as the whole Bitcoin network doesn't shut off, it's fine. It doesn't matter if, you know, there's like, you know, parts of it that are shutting off and parts of it are turning on around the world. And so I, yeah, I think that's a, it's a unique energy buyer that we haven't really seen before, and it enables you know certain things. How are institutions getting this so wrong at the moment? I don't know if you've been following the Greenpeace. I guess it's I don't know what you'd call it, um, and it's almost like an attack where they're kind of sort of suggesting you know Bitcoin is really really bad. It's kind of you know a net negative for humanity. What what's happening here? Because I also saw a report from the White House. It was on the whole, pretty poorly researched and understood. Well, so one of it is, so Greenpeace, it's public. It's publicly disclosed that they received money from the former Ripple CEO, right? So you have other cryptos that are then using that as an attack vector on Bitcoin. So that's, you're immediately biased. Number two is a lot of people, you know, they didn't like Bitcoin. They were like, look at all these libertarians back in the day. And, you know, now it's, now it's a much more politically diverse group of users. In the early days, it was, you know, you had a little bit more libertarian minded in there. And it's like, you know, they were like, we don't like this, like, tech bro, Bitcoin guys, you know, and like, the bank system obviously didn't like it, you know, like peer to peer money. That's, you know, who wants that? We, we, we certainly don't. Certainly not us. Yeah. So, and, <laughs> and, 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 you know, governments don't love it. They want to, you know, they, if anything, they want to they have more control, more transparency over blocking transactions or allowing certain transactions. They don't want this, like, kind of free peer to peer nature. So then you, you tack on. You know, it's only used by terrorists. It's only used for drugs or whatever the case may be. Same thing happened for pager technology. So pagers back in the day before cell phones were common, people had pagers, right? So you, you can get alerts when you, when you were trying, someone was trying to reach you. And it's funny because the two groups that used them were like, say, doctors and drug dealers, right? So, <laughs> so criminals are early adopters of technology. Uh, it doesn't mean the technology is yeah. bad, uh, but also they're, you know, they're also, it was valuable technology. People that had highly... High, highly time sensitive, you know, professions needed pagers. And so I think, you know, Bitcoin was like that where, you know, first it was used by WikiLeaks when they got the platform from PayPal. Then it was used by people that want to buy drugs online. And then, you know, a lot of that was centralized and attacked and cleaned up. And then it's like, well, we still have this peer to peer money. And, you know, then it's like, well, human rights activists are like, hey, wait a second. This is interesting. This is, uh, yeah, you know, and then like, uh, you know, people that are concerned about inflation or living in, in in perpetually inflationary countries were like, "Hey, this is this is interesting, right? You know, maybe it's not just drugs online." And so I th I think that a lot of a lot of these institutions established opinions without understanding or in an earlier era, and then they can't change; they're stuck. Um, mm. And so uh, and, and commitment or, and consistency. Or, yeah, or they have interests that are mm. that are not aligned. Um, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Lynn, thank you so much. This has been really 
thoughtful, really insightful. And it is just so rare to find someone who is that thoughtful but knowledgeable and at the same time objective. Where can people learn more about you and from you? Uh, so I'm at lindon.com. Uh, people can find my work there. Also active on Twitter at lindoncontact. And, uh, you know, people are welcome. And thanks for having me. And I think, no, nah, no problems at all. I'm going to have a link to all of the work that um, that I've all of the, the work that I've found really instructive and insightful and, and useful in my sort of journey around the macro side of things and also learning and understanding more about Bitcoin. Uh, and if you're listening to this, I would highly encourage you to read those articles. Lynn publishes them for free. Absolutely prolific. I need to ask you more questions about how you get all this stuff done, Lynn, because I'm looking through your website going, it's just, it actually blows my mind. But thanks again so much for coming on. Really, really do appreciate it. And um, hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you.